There is something wrong with the world. Can you see it? Do you feel it? It's all over the internet, on our news feeds, in our relationships. Things are just wrong, and they are getting worse. Society has become, in a word, toxic. But the gospel has an antidote. You see, some of you were once like that. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. by the Spirit of our God. All right, well, good morning, NBC. Welcome back to week two of our series where we're looking at detoxicity. Uh, We're looking at the toxic nature of society and relationships through the lens of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Now, last week, we explored toxic culture at large, and today we're going to zoom in and do a laser focus uh, on uh, toxic leaders, because in many ways, our toxic culture stems from the toxic leadership environment that exists in places like government and businesses and schools, and at times, even in the church. Now, let me ask you a question as we start today. What type of leader would you follow? One of the classic and off-cited texts on leadership and organizational health is Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Now, Collins, if you don't know, he was a Stanford professor who identified levels of leadership. At the bottom is the level one leader, a highly capable individual who makes productive contributions to the team. He says the pinnacle is the level five leader, the executive who has the ability to combine deep personal humility with um, uh, a passionate commitment to do the right thing for the company and the customer. Now this, Colin says, is the level of leadership to aspire to. But level five leaders are not as common as you would like. Most people only make it to level four. Now these leaders, level four leaders, are effective, but their impact is not enduring. And the reason for that is that they are too ego-driven, usually. They love the limelight. They attempt to win accolades from their peers, but in a self-orienting way, which keeps them from always doing the right thing. And that's why they're not successful over the long haul. What type of leader would you follow? A level five or a level four? Now, if we did a survey of our world today, what type of leaders would we find? What would be the state of our leadership? And I want you to think about government, right? Government officials. What While we would like to believe that our elected officials often have our best interests in mind, sometimes it seems like they are beholden to an ideological agenda. Uh, How about leaders who run companies and schools? Our hope is that these leaders are, uh, are always taking the right ethical action when challenging situations arise, but there are times when leaders seem to be captured by by special interest groups or the flavor of the day. You know, we'll do whatever makes the most money and satisfies the most people in the moment. That's that's often the response, right? And what about churches? Right? The organization that should be the most humble and ethical place on the planet. And yet it seems like every week we're hearing about churches breaking apart or there's a scandal involving a prominent 
pastor. In fact, over the last year, one of the most popular podcasts on iTunes has been Christianity Today's Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Now, if you don't know, that chronicled the swift rise of uh, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle, and its even swifter collapse back in 2014. The podcast explored the celebrity culture in evangelicalism that has, they argued, facilitated an unhealthy uh, leadership style within the church. Even in the church, they say, leaders are not immune to loving the limelight over integrity. But what type of leader would you follow? Now, when I say leader, uh, you often think of the positions I just mentioned, politician or CEO or administrator or pastor, elder, and indeed, those are leadership positions with great weight attached to them. But the truth is, we are all leaders, right? We, we all lead somebody. It could be in your family. It could be in your vocation. It could be in your school. Many of us are leaders at some level in the church. And when we take a survey of leadership today, what we have to do is take a look at our own hearts and ask ourselves, what do we find? Why are things so toxic? Now, one of the reasons, I think, for the toxic nature of leadership in our culture today is is the world's natural inclination towards narcissistic tendencies. And you may be saying, what what is a narcissist? Well, let me give you a simple definition because I'm going to talk about this today. A narcissist is somebody who has an inflated sense of their own importance, a need, a deep need for admiration, and a lack of empathy for others. In other words, this is a person who believes they make the world a better place, right? Uh, They crave attention, but they don't really care about others. Now, in recent years, it's become common fare to project this label onto a political figure we don't agree with or a Hollywood celebrity who seems out of touch. But the truth is, and and this is kind of the main thing I've wrestled with today, I think there is a little bit of narcissism in all of us. In his excellent book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, author and counselor Chuck DeGroat sums up our collective problem. He says this, He says, it's not enough to look at narcissism through the lens of an egotistical political leader figure or an emotionally abusive spouse or an arrogant CEO, a powerful religious figure. We swim, he says, in the cultural waters of narcissism. It's an us problem, not a them problem. Now, why does that thought matter? You know, why does it matter in particular for leadership? Well, back in 2010, a guy named Aaron Cariotti wrote a book entitled The Era of the Narcissist, a rather provocative title. And for research for the book, what he did was he collected a survey of data from 37,000 college students, and this is what he found. He found that narcissistic personality traits um, rose dramatically from the 1980s all the way to 2010 when he wrote the book, and probably continuing to today. Now, before you're out there and you start saying, aha, it's those millennials, The author actually assembled evidence showing this trend happened across the board, meaning it was in all age groups. And the question was, how do you know if you're a narcissist? Well, here's the symptoms he found. The symptoms were vanity, materialism, an inflated sense of one's own specialness or importance, antisocial behavior, little interest in emotionally close or unselfish relationships, along with a lack of empathy, exaggerated overconfidence, a strong sense of entitlement. And he simply asks, does that sound like anybody you know? And some of you say, well, yes. Yes, I live with one. (laughs) I work with one. But again, before you start, you start pointing fingers at somebody else. The point is to look in the mirror and assess yourself. Because if we live in a narcissistic culture, it's very easy to mirror that culture. 
And so the point I'm making is this. If there's been a steep rise in narcissistic tendencies among all age groups, as this, this uh, researcher contends, does it not make sense that this has infected our leadership as well? Now, Chuck DeGroat, in his book, goes on to say there's many faces of narcissism. And let me offer you a few examples to see if you can find yourself in any of these. Maybe, maybe you play the role of the savior. Okay, the savior is the benevolent narcissist. This is somebody who's motivated to help. But the driving force is not empathy, it's ego. You need to fix your own wounds by trying to fix others. Maybe you play the winner, right? This is the classic uh, caricature of a grandiose narcissist, charming, superior. Uh, They have a desperate need to be seen, and the thrill of accomplishment is just the dopamine high that they crave. Maybe you're the distancer. And this person is the cerebral type, a member of the intellectual elite who looks down on anyone who does not have as much knowledge as them. And then there's the wallflower. And that, and that one's a bit harder to see, but, but it's there. This, this is the, the person who's passive-aggressive, right? They're quick to tell everybody else they, they are fine. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, when they're clearly not. You never quite know where you stand with this person. And then there's the perfectionist, right? This person always has to be right. This person is smart. They're logical. They're they're principled. They can see that the world could be a better place. They hunger for truth and goodness. They can even inspire, but this person can easily turn towards judgment and wield the knife of self-righteousness leading to toxic consequences. Now, do you see yourself in any of those? Now, there's more, but I think you get the idea. At this point, I I would just think it's worth mentioning that there actually is a clinical condition called narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD, uh, which is a clinical term, uh, and people affected by NPD need the help of a professional counselor. But in this message, what I'm doing is I'm using this term at a very popular level, because I think within all of us, there is a sin nature. The Bible tells us that. And lurking inside each of us, at some level, is a is a narcissism that we need to put to death. Because all the personalities I just mentioned, they they have positive aspects, but they can easily take a narcissistic turn, which is usually born out of shame, trying to cover something up, a wound. And if we've not confronted that dark side of who we are, and then we move into a leadership position, it can become toxic. We can cause damage. In fact, I imagine that that was a major problem at the church in Corinth. We started to look at them last week. Look at how Paul moves into chapter 3 of his letter to them. He says this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. For you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? Now, friends, my question is, is it possible that the reason there was so many divisions in the Corinthian church was related to some form of narcissism? Right? What, what were the symptoms of narcissism? Uh, vanity, materialism, inflated views of yourself, lack of empathy, overconfidence, entitlement. Now, doesn't that sound like the Corinthian culture we started to look at last week? In fact, cultural, these cultural elements of Corinth were encouraging this behavior. It was antithetical to the gospel. And so Paul writes to the, the Christians and says, listen, you should be more mature, but you're, you're babies, 
right? You, you cry. And I know a little bit about babies nowadays. You cry. You whine. You fight over toys. You only think about yourselves. You're living like the world. And many of these people were aspiring to be spiritual leaders. What type of leader would you follow? Toxic culture is often the result of toxic leaders. So for the rest of our time, what we're going to do is explore 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, parts of them, because after this opening statement in chapter 3, Paul offers the example of himself and and Apollos as leaders who have a heart for spiritual growth. And then in verses 5 to 9, he uses a gardening image. He says, God is going to make you grow. But if you want to grow, he says, if you want to become leaders who make an impact, you have to confront your narcissistic tendencies. And so for the rest of of chapters 3 and 4, Paul shows the Corinthians and us how to shatter that toxic narcissism that can ruin your leadership. He does it in three ways. First, he says, you have to reverse your entitlement. Second, you have to confront your ego. And then finally, you have to embrace gospel humility. Okay, so before we get into that, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to just illuminate our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for my friends who, who are here in person. Thank you for my friends who are, who are watching at home. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would minister to all of our hearts. Minister to the preacher, minister to the people that are here, minister to the people that are listening to this later on, Lord God. I pray that you, you would humble us, Lord. Humble us as you showed us what humility should look like. So ultimately that you would get the glory and not us. Help us, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, excuse me. Entitlement. Entitlement is the bedrock of the narcissistic leader. Now, people with this mindset often view others as people who owe them something. Their loyalty, their their money, their their sympathy. And the the problem is this. If this leader ever faces the possibility of losing something they think they are owed, they feel like they're losing their identity. And so it becomes a threat. In fact, I heard a story once of a pastor who was, a pastor who was confronting a, a, a subordinate leader in their church, and that leader was simply um, trying to make suggestions to help the church be better, but the pastor saw that as a threat. And so he, he asked the subordinate to come into his office, he was confronting him, and he asked him whose church it was. And knowing his personality, the subordinate leader just simply said, it's your church. And the pastor stared him in the eye and said, that's right, it's my church, and don't you forget it. And that is the manifestation of entitlement in a narcissistic leader. So Paul warns about this in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. He says, because of God's grace, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be careful For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, Jesus Christ. Now let me break this down and and examine how it relates to reversing entitlement. Notice the concept he starts with. He starts with grace. And if you've read the Bible at any length, you know that grace is God's unmerited favor towards his people. We don't deserve it. It's a gift, right? And God gives it to us. And then Paul says, I've laid a foundation in the church because of this, because of the grace that he's given to me. Now, the word foundation is important because it alludes to the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which speaks of God's foundation stone. And here and throughout the New Testament, it's very clear that Jesus is that stone. 
In other words, the church is built upon his life and his work and the work of ministry in the church and the gifts that we are given are from God. They are God's. So when somebody asks you, who does Millington Baptist Church belong to? The answer is God. In other words, we don't own the building. Right? Never forget that. We don't own the building. So Paul offers a warning in verse 10. He says, if you're building on this foundation, be careful. And that's where entitlement starts to come. It stems from narcissism, and this is how it rears its ugly head in the church. And I've seen it over the decades. I've seen it in my own heart. Here's what happens. God gives each of us a gift, and then we start to serve in ministry. And then fruit, at some level, is produced because of our acts of service. And then what starts to happen? We start saying that we're serving in my ministry. Right? And at some point, we start to forget that it's God's ministry. And we hold it with a tight fist. And if anybody tries to take that ministry that we're serving in away from us, even if God is trying to move us on, we're going to fight it tooth and nail because we feel entitled. We become possessive. It becomes our identity. Ministry can very much become your identity over God. Let me give you another image. Have you ever seen a medieval cathedral? If you've been through Europe, you know, walking through these cathedrals, they're they're amazing. The high ceilings, the beautiful architecture. Well, of all the amazing features of these medieval cathedrals, one feature stands out as very strange in the modern mind, I would say. And that is that we have no idea who designed and built these cathedrals. Right, you walk into a cathedral, and the, the architect and builder of that era did not bother to sign their names on, these, on the cornerstones. And so people today might ask, well, why would you build the cathedral of Notre Dame and not take credit for it? No lasting fame, no immortalized human glory. This perplexes us. Like, why, why would people labor in obscurity? You're going to do this and then disappear? But that's how we roll in American, 21st century American culture. Now, now why, why was this the case? All humility changed during the Enlightenment. Okay, French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he wrote a book in 1789 called The, the Confessions. And here's how he dedicated that book. He dedicated it to me with the admiration I owe myself. <laughs> now, very influential on his culture. The truth is he stole the title from St. Augustine, who also wrote a famous book called The Confessions, but here's how Augustine began his book. He began it with a psalm, great thou art, and greatly to be praised. Now, do you see the difference in focus? Augustine understood that we don't own the building. It's countercultural in many ways today. (coughs) Excuse me. So Paul offers this warning to leaders in verses 12 and 13. He goes on, he says, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Now remember, the foundation is Jesus Christ himself. God gives each of us spiritual gifts to engage in ministry for his glory and to point people to Jesus. But never forget who owns the building. And be careful how you build, because one day all of us will stand before the judge. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think the basic assumption of these verses is this. Some people's work will last, and some will not. 
And the future fire will reveal if you were serving the Lord for his glory or for your own. The fire will show if you understood that you don't own the building. If you want to have an impact, if you want to build a ministry that lasts, it must be about Jesus Christ. It is not our ministry. It is his ministry. It's not about us. And this principle goes beyond leadership in church ministry. Right? If you are a Christian, if your heart belongs to Jesus Christ, you understand that everything you have, it belongs to God. Amen. It is not your family. It is not your business. It is not your money. As theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there is not a square inch in the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this is mine. Now, recognition of that fact will guard against toxic narcissism in leadership in any sphere. So Paul moves on to a second image in verse 16 and 17. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the, are the what? Are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, these verses are a recall from the opening of the letter. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 2, he emphasizes the Corinthians have been called together in Christ. And so when Paul writes that the Spirit of God lives in you, it's a plural, right? It's not just an individual. It's not not just about you, singular. It's about y'all, plural. Our southern friends help us with that because we don't have that up here. Paul's the plural use. Paul speaks about building the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then he compares the church to the temple. In other words, in New Testament times, we, the church, are the building in which God dwells. And a warning follows that. I will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. Now, that sounds harsh. What does that mean? Well, I think he's referring to the second principle about reversing entitlement, and that is this. We should honor the temple. Because this verse comes in the context of Paul confronting divisions in the church. Influenced by Corinthian thinking, some leaders in the church were using their power and their prestige to divide. They were creating factions. They were destroying God's temple. And Paul doesn't mince words. He just says, if you're somebody who destroys who divides God's people, there will be consequences. You don't own the building, so honor the temple. Now, practically speaking, this is where narcissistic entitlement can cause serious damage in the church. Because Paul is basically saying, godly leaders do not solely focus and do not selfishly focus on themselves. They pursue what brings God the most glory. Narcissistic entitled leaders are selfish. As that one pastor said, it's my church. Right? Godly leaders understand that it's God's church, that the church is the bride of Christ. We are merely stewards. Therefore, we will treat the church well. We will honor the bride of Christ by not sowing destructive division in any way. Now, when you think you're entitled to ministry, it can very much lead to division. And this is how it plays out. What we start to do is we start to create toxic binaries. And what I mean by that is we separate people into labeled groups. It's us versus them. It's Republican versus Democrat. It becomes toxic because we start to demonize people. We only think about ourselves, not others. The question is, is that honoring to the temple? People engage then in power plays. 
right? If you feel entitled to something, you're going to go to great lengths to keep it. We're going to forge alliances. We're going to create echo chambers. We're going to stop caring about the health of the church as long as we feel justified. Again, is that honoring of the temple? Because we don't own the building. God does. And he wants to dwell inside each of us as his temple. So honor the temple. Don't destroy it. Don't divide it. Pursue detoxicity. And then when we get those two principles deep down in our hearts, that's when we reverse the entitlement. But reversing entitlement requires that we first go one layer deeper. We have to get deeper into the heart muscle. And how do we do that? Well, that gets us to point number two. We have to confront our ego. The first was the tip of the iceberg. The second step takes us below the waterline. So it gets to the motivation behind our behavior. It forces us to confront the false self we've constructed. Now, last week, we spoke about that gas mask. Remember, I came up here with that gas mask on? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) There we go. We're prone to wear because of the toxicity around us. Now, pursuing leadership, organizational, and relational health, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to remove the mask. Charles Spurgeon said it beautifully. He said this to the church, appear to be what thou art, tear off thy masks. The church is never meant to be a masquerade. Stand out in thy true colors. And to that I say, that's a challenging and ambitious goal. Because the problem is that the people who wear the thickest masks are the most religious people. Now why is that? (laughs) Because we want to look good before others. Right? We don't want anybody to think that we're less holy than we are. We, we've created these unwritten religious rules that keep us from getting to the heart of our issues. And by obeying those rules, we allow our ego to get inflated, right? And leaders especially are prone to having a large ego. So this is what Paul targets in verses 18 and 19. He says this. He says, stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool To be truly wise, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Now, there's a lot packed in those two verses, so let me just note two themes. First, Paul is again contrasting the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that comes from God. And it follows that God and his gospel, if you follow God and his gospel, you're a fool. If you follow the world's standards, you may be embraced for a time, you may get your 15 minutes of fame, but what's here today is gone tomorrow. And so secondly, Paul then links this to the first rung of the ladder when we're confronting our ego, and that is the the rung of self-deception. Stop deceiving yourselves, he shouts it. And the grammar almost, it's a statement that's abrupt, it's challenging, he's he's trying to rattle us here. Now, Now, what deception is he talking about? Well, Paul's assumption is that the people of Corinth can... The people of Corinth do think they are wise, but they have a huge blind spot. And it's right there that we find the heart of the narcissistic leader. How does somebody become self-deceived? Well, again, Chuck DeGroote asserts that most people, when they think of narcissism, assume that this person, this leader, is in love with himself or herself. But, he says, the real root of narcissism is shame. He writes this. He says, narcissism is born in the soil of shame and self-contempt, not healthy self-love. Narcissism is not fundamentally about self-love, but about an escape from love. That fragile little boy or girl that's inside us, they go into hiding and protect that false self 
that takes the lead. Now, if that's true, if escape and hiding are our motivations, you can very much see how we become deceived. Because isn't that the story of Genesis 3? Right? Adam and Eve buy the lie of the serpent, and when God shows up for an intimate face-to-face talk, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. And we all do this, especially leaders. Why? Because leaders feel the weight of the world is on their shoulders. There is pressure to make the organization successful, increase sales, make sure your child meets all their milestones, keep the image of the family looking good, get the grade that's going to make your parents proud, increase attendance and giving in the church. And yes, that's a thing. Now, why do you feel the weight? Because if you don't do it, people you think are going to look down on you. Or you might start to look down on yourself and get hard on yourself. We all wrestle with this at some level. And this is how Paul describes it in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He says, so look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who've been what? Who've been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who's put in charge as a manager must be faithful. So take that in, right? He, can, can you feel the immensity of this responsibility Right, Paul says he and Apollos, the two leaders who've been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Okay, that's, that's a lot. They have to be faithful. And that word manager can also be translated as steward. A steward is somebody who's been put in charge while the king is away. But one day the king is going to come back. And what's he going to say? Now you might say, Pastor Bob, that's a lot of pressure. And yes, it, it, it is, but it's a healthy pressure. But it's pressure nonetheless. And at some point... What happens is we think it's easier to hide, but hiding is what leads to that self-deception. And in terms of narcissism, it plays out in one of two ways. Look at verses, verse chap, chapter 4, verse 3. He says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. So he highlights two opinions. Right? First, he says, there are people who are beholden to the world's opinion. He says, it doesn't matter if I'm evaluated by you or a human authority. But the truth is, so many of us, we really care a lot about what other people think. Right? Our self-esteem is intricately linked to the applause and the praise and the encouragement from others. And if we are critiqued, if we're criticized, we just crawl up in a ball and we want to cry. Now, second, he says, there are people who, are, who only care about what they think of themselves. And these are people who pay no attention to what other people think. I know myself. I know best. People like this don't invite any feedback. Right? They run over people. Sometimes they claim, God told me. And and they just keep going. And, 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 you know, people are hurt. Now, truthfully, what Paul's doing is he's highlighting two levels of narcissistic leaders that can lead to toxic environments. The first is, is a grandiose narcissism. And this, this, again, is the classic form of narcissism. This leader is somebody who's attention-seeking, but they lack empathy and the ability to experience intimacy. Their identity may be based on their accomplishments, which, leads, which means they will stop at nothing to achieve their goals. They, they don't care what others think. Uh, they often leave a pile of hurting people behind them. But second, there's also a vulnerable narcissism, And we don't typically think of this person as as a narcissist. We view them as being um, overly humble or weak. 
But a vulnerable narcissist is fragile, is hypervigilant, is shy, sensitive, depressed. People who fall into this category are often experiencing life not working as it should. This person has an unhealthy concern with others' opinions. They are vulnerable because they've been wounded, and wounded people often wound others. Now, the reality is that if you want to grow as a leader, if, if you want to remove these toxic patterns from your life, you have to confront your ego. And you do that by understanding where you have deceived yourself. Both of these patterns I just described are born out of shame from a wounding. And typically, it typically manifests itself in a leadership style that is low empathy and has an unhealthy use of power. And so Paul moves, moves in the next couple of verses to show us how to get beyond this self-deception. Verse 4 and 5, he says this, It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Now the truth is people... We, we cannot know ourselves apart from knowing who we are before God. Therefore, Paul says the way beyond self-deception is to be concerned primarily with what God thinks of us. He will examine us. And when he comes back, everything will be revealed. And so that's the second rung of the ladder when confronting your ego. It's the rung of sobriety. Now, when I say sobriety, I mean... God sees everything, and yet so many of us are so self-deceived, we think we still can hide from God. We're self-deceived because we think nobody notices the patterns of our private lives and how they are manifesting themselves in our public lives. And the only way to confront that is with a radical honesty before God because he knows all things. Let me show you what this might look like. Again, Chuck DeGroat, in his book, he shares a story of a woman named Jade. Jade has been married to Vance for 23 years, and they are the model Christian couple. All right, they both look and they dress the part in their affluent suburban church, but their relationship was narcissistic and abusive and hidden for many years. So he was a doctor, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom, and she winds up coming to Chuck for counseling, and in their counseling, it's revealed that there's a long-time pattern of emotional abuse through words, criticism, Controlling attitudes, they're common. But she didn't have the words to articulate what was happening. And so once she was awakened to that toxic dynamic, she was actually able to confront the problem. But the point I want to draw out is this. This was hidden from their closest friends, their small group, the people who knew them best. But it wasn't hidden from God. Our secrets will be revealed one day. So let's not wait Right? Paul says, let's confront our ego with sobriety now. Let's seek healthy solutions to that toxicity. And Paul addresses the final rung of the ladder in chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. He says this, so don't boast about following a particular leader, for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. It reminds me of that song we sang at the beginning. If we are going to confront our ego, you have to get this deep down in your heart. We need to uncover that self-deception as we soberly remember that God knows all things. And when those two things happen, it's then that we find the solution. 
And the solution is right here in chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. We all have a need for a union with Christ. Toxic leadership is born, yes, out of an unhealed wound, wound that comes from shame, and it causes us to hide. But Paul says God sees everything, so run to the cross. Right, you were, he says later in the letter, you were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. Stop hiding. Instead, let your life be hidden in Christ. His blood covers your shame. His blood offers you the love and the attention and the worth that you're looking for. It's not something you deserve, but it's given anyway. And it's only when you run to the foot of the cross that you find true healing. Chuck DeGroat says it this way. He says, sin is not fundamentally about a bad behavior that we do. And that's usually what we think. It's about habits that become ingrained as we attempt to get primitive needs met. Sin is how we live outside of union with God, who dwells within us, but whose presence we can evade and avoid through self-sabotaging patterns of living. Sin is how we live outside of union with God. I love, I love that. When we hide, when we're not honest because of our ego, it leads to these, these sabotaging patterns of behavior. When we hide, we avoid God's presence, but God sees everything. And so that should drive us to our knees. Take off the masks, as Spurgeon said. Confront your ego, which is trying to protect you, but in reality, it's keeping you from the truth. And so if we're leaders, which many of us are, this is especially crucial because we are influencing others. Let's be people of detoxicity. Let's be people who finally embrace gospel humility. Because gospel humility is the cry of every healthy leader. Gospel humility allows us to be honest and not hide. Gospel humility is what gives us true security as a leader. Because we know our shame has been dealt with on the cross. We know there's a God who loved us enough to shed his blood for us. Gospel humility shows us it's not about us. Look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you, so I urge you, imitate me. Now, leading up to these verses, Paul had admonished the believers. He told them to remember everything they have as a gift, boast in the Lord. He offered himself as an example of living a life as an outcast in this world. Look at verse 13. He says this, We have all become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Paul compares himself to trash. Now, why would he do that? Well, if you remember, one of the major problems at Corinth was their spiritual arrogance. That they were very gifted. But as we've learned today, gifting without character, that's a recipe for toxic leadership. Character must trump gifting. Beware the person who wants to jump into leadership too quickly. Look for the person who's willing to do the jobs nobody else wants to do, like taking out the trash. If you want to have gospel humility, Paul says, you have to trust God's provision. You have to adjust your heart's posture. And when you do that, he says, imitate me. I've been trying to live that out. You don't care what the world thinks. You will only care what God thinks. You will love people as God has loved you, as Christ has loved you. Look at how Paul concludes the chapter. Verse 18, he says, some of you have become arrogant, thinking I will not visit you again, but I will come 
And soon, if the Lord lets me, and then I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power, his dunamis that we talked about last week. Now, Paul, who's been a leader, a spiritual father to these Corinthians, he offers some honest talk at the end. He says, listen, some of you, I see some arrogance in you, and I'll be back, and then I'm going to help you see that the world's wisdom, that's not real leadership. It's going to fall apart. The kingdom of God is not about the big talk of the narcissistic leaders. It's about living by God's power, humbly depending on the cross of Christ. It's there, he says, that we find the security we need. We find the security we need when we are radically and humbly honest with others and ourselves. And until that time, we will always be attempting to prove ourselves. Radical, humble honesty pursues the gospel humility we're talking about. And that may be the only way to really minister to the narcissistic person in your life. Because some of you at this point might be saying, well, you know what, I, I get Pastor Bob, I should be looking at my own heart, but what do I do about the narcissistic boss or spouse or friend? Well, I would just suggest you invite them to ask one question. How do you experience me? And if you can get that person to ask that question of you, it's then that you can be openly honest, radically honest with them. And it's in that moment that you trust the Holy Spirit to open that person's eyes and hearts. It's painful, but only there can lasting change occur. It's in that moment that you can help them believe that the final verdict was rendered on their behalf. So I'll ask you one more time, what type of leader would you follow? The state of leadership in our world is grim, as we talked about at the beginning. There's some narcissism that exists in all of us. Why is that? Because we're all trying to prove ourselves. We often lead out of an unhealed place of shame. But leadership is weighty, and it's not without its challenges. Because to lead is to make decisions. And decisions often bring criticism. Truthfully, criticism is hard for many people, right? And this is true if you're a church leader, if you're a business leader, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a student who leads, if you're a professional person, we're all leaders to some extent. And for many of us, our lives, because of that, have felt like a courtroom. Right? Person after person in our care comes to the witness stand and brings a verdict against us. Right? In each statement, it feels like the judge takes the gavel and, and it, it strikes in your heart. Right? One person takes the stand and says, he doesn't listen. She is so selfish. He's all about himself. She will never change. And these statements, these verdicts, they can wound a leader and cause them then to go into protective mode. And there may be truth in these statements that we have to face. But my point is protective mode keeps us from dealing with the actual issue. Instead, we start operating out of places of wounding in our leadership, and that is then what leads to a toxic environment. It's the healthy leader, that level five leader that we spoke about at the beginning, who has confidence because they know, they know that these statements are not the final verdict. The final verdict was rendered 2,000 years ago on a hill of Golgotha because with his final breath, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. And now Jesus says to each of our hearts, the final verdict is in. My blood speaks a better word over you than any of those words that you've heard. 
You are forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted into my family. Now live. Now lead. A life of humility by the grace I have given you. The final verdict is in. And you can lead with confidence. So as you leave today, I would invite you to just take an inventory of your heart this week and ask, has, in, has my entitlement been reversed? Right? Are, am I actively confronting my ego? Right? Am I a leader who embraces gospel humility wherever I lead? And if you're not, ask yourself, why? Why? Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're scared that you're going to be found out as a fraud. Maybe you don't want to go to that place because it's too painful. But if we want a world of detoxicity, we need to dig the toxic pattern out of our hearts for the glory of God and for the sake of his gospel. Theologian Leslie Newbegin offers this beautiful picture. He says, Jesus rises from his knees and calls to his disciples, rise, let us be going. And then Jesus goes before us to the cross. And he says, there is the pattern of leadership for the church. And so, friends, as we leave today, let's, let's rise. Let's go to the cross. And it's from the shadow of the cross that we should lead. Amen? Amen. Let me invite the worship team to come back up for one final song. And as they come, let me close this in prayer today. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we thank you. We thank you for your grace with us. We thank you for your patience with us, Lord, so often We're not patient with others, and yet we forget the mercy and the grace and the love that you show to us, Lord. Thank you for leading us so well. Thank you for loving us as our Father. Um, Lord, I pray today that you would humble us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to reverse that entitlement, to, to confront the ego that we face, Lord. Help us to know that it's because of you that we should have humility. You modeled humility for us. Thank you for setting us free, Jesus, by your sacrifice on the cross, and giving us the power to live a life that's glorifying to you through your resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for ministering to us. Would you lead us today? We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.